Like if Texas wanted to get in over Florida State, hey, guess what? Don't lose to Oklahoma and give up a 75-yard drive with a minute and 12 seconds left to lose the game. Don't get stuffed to the goal line. Don't turn it over three times. I'm sorry. Florida State didn't do those things. Like they won the games that were in front of them. And while we all get enamored with the eye test to know, well, the game control and, oh, the margin of victory. No, did you win or did you lose? And if Florida State won all their games, they should be in. Welcome in. It's always college football. It is a Thanksgiving week edition. I am not at home. I am away from home. A little different backdrop here, but same content. And we appreciate you coming to us from wherever it is you're coming to us from. I'm Greg McElroy. Thank you guys so much for subscribing to the podcast, liking the podcast, rating the podcast, telling your friends about the podcast. The numbers are up like come some crazy triple digit percentage from a year ago. And it's all thanks to you guys, and we couldn't do it without you. We do it every Monday. We do our takeaways. We're also going to do our top six. And there are some significant takeaways that need to be heard. I'm tired of the air, of the argument that if you lose a player, it should hurt your playoff chances. If you win your games, you should be benefited. You should be given the benefit of the doubt. I'll explain why here in just a minute. We're going to go through takeaways from Michigan, takeaways from Ohio State, Takeaways from Georgia, takeaways for Florida State, so many different things. And I also am going to give a little bit of a tip of the cap and a takeaway about rivalry games and why they need to be preserved because this week is so special for all of us. We'll be sitting around the Thanksgiving table. We'll be stuffed to to the gills. And in some houses, there will be houses divided. I know in our house, there is one lone Auburn supporter amongst like 30 Bama supporters. But tell you what. It takes toughness and mental fortitude to sit at that dinner table on Thursday when we're all breaking bread and having a good time. Rivalries are what it's all about, man. We have a great week ahead. So let's set the table with an excellent Monday show, talking takeaways, giving you our top six, and then dive into some of the best storylines from this past weekend of the college football season. We'll start Monday like we start every Monday by giving our top six at the moment Here's how I think teams are playing. Here's how I think teams should sort out, whether it's based on resume, eye test, all those other things. Like I base most of what I do off of eye test, what I think a team is capable of. So I know I qualify that every week. And the committee's resume eye test balance is different than mine. Mine's based on who I think would beat who on a neutral site. Okay. So the number one team is Georgia. They were the number one team last week. They were the number two team for weeks prior to that. Michigan was at number one. Michigan's dropping a little bit, and I'll explain why here in just a little bit. At number two, I have the Ohio State Buckeyes. Adjustment there. Buckeyes, as of, gosh, two or three weeks ago, they were all the way down at number five. But what I've seen from them offensively, and now that they've started to get a little healthier, we'll explain that again here when we go through some of our takeaways. I feel like they're trending in the right direction and their offense is going to become more difficult to defend moving forward. At number three, I've dropped Michigan down to number three. There's a noticeable difference in how they're playing offensively with Jim Harbaugh on the sideline as opposed to when he's not been on the sideline. We'll talk about that. I have them down at number three. At number four, I'm moving Washington up. Part of me actually wanted to move Washington up further. I just can't at the moment justify putting them in front of any of the aforementioned teams. Their resume is amazing. I have a ton of respect for who they are. And I have a ton of respect for the amount of different ways they found ways to win this year. They're awesome. I love Washington. And I think they are 
totally in control of their own destiny and rightfully so. At number five, I have Florida State. It does not have to do with Jordan Travis's injury. It has to do with their offensive line. And the more I'm watching Florida State, I think they have elite players at several different positions, except for the offensive line. And if there's one position group that would concern me a lot going into a playoff situation, the offensive line is one that I do not want to have a liability at. I think they're just okay up front. And that could be problematic for them when facing off any of the teams I've listed already up to this point. Number six, I still have Oregon. Oregon, I think, is continuing to be really efficient. Not a ton of takeaways to be had from the performance against Arizona State, but that's a really good football team on both sides of the football. I love how Bo Nix is playing. I love how they have great playmakers, and they're in control of their own destiny too, I think. Here's the amazing thing, is that every single team I just listed is in complete control of their own destiny. And that's it. Texas at seven, they need help. Bama at eight, they need help. Uh, any team below those obviously needs a lot of help. So these are really the only teams right now that I think is in that are in the position to get to the playoff by their own accord. That includes Florida State, but we'll talk about their candidacy here in just a moment. Well, every week we try to think of a way to find chaos, a way to find uh, situations that are unlikely so that we can play the playoff probability game, right? The what if this happens, so that happens. Who would get in if this team loses to this team? And if there's chaos everywhere, then who would get in? Would Louisville find their way into the college football playoff? Potentially, right? I mean, all those things are fun. They're enjoyable. I, I fall victim to it on a week-to-week basis too. But for the third consecutive week, the top eight teams from the committee's Halloween rankings, the October 31st, first inaugural playoff rankings, they all won. Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, Washington, Oregon, Texas, and Bama are all victorious. So the chaos seemingly becoming more and more unlikely (laughs) as we continue to move forward. Let's start with takeaway number one. Can we please stop doubting Washington, please? And, And by the way, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to everybody else. Now, there was a time after the first month of the season, where I actually had Washington as my number one team. I had them up there, number one. So this is the team I'd least like to play. They're so dangerous. They're so explosive. And Penix is unbelievable. The receiver core is incredible. The defense is still pretty decent. There's things to like about the Washington Huskies. But in the second month of the season, and since, it hasn't been quite as seamless, and that's okay. If anything, we should probably gain respect for how Washington's won in a variety of different ways. They've won in shootouts like they did against Oregon and against USC. They've won with their defense like they did against Arizona State. We looked, saw them play in a pass-happy offense in torrential rain at times against Oregon State on the road and still found a way to get it done. The thing that's amazing to me is that they have somehow made winning look difficult at times, but... They always seem to find a way, and here they are entering into week 12, game 12, against a 5-6 and six Washington State team that is the only hurdle remaining to a, a perfect season in the regular season. I think what's incredible, though, is that this team, they always seem to just kind of figure it out. Now, you look at last week. This would have been a perfect recipe for Oregon State, whether – uh, not a great, not, not a great day to be throwing the football over the yard. 
uh, a day where defense and run game were going to be optimal and the way you'd like to probably try to attack Washington. Like everything looked like it was going to be perfect in the pregame and even to an extent the first couple plays of the game. Like, man, this is going to be a tough one for Washington for sure. And then, boom, they flip the switch. They're up 22-10. And then in the second half, it's like, okay, Oregon State makes a couple adjustments. They grind out that 16-play drive that resulted in a touchdown. They follow it by kicking a field goal. Now, ball game. Here we are after a 10-minute possession from Oregon State. They're now down two, and it felt like the momentum had swung greatly in favor of the Beavers. Well, you know, Washington didn't score in the second half. It wasn't great. They had just 272 yards of total offense, but they get the stop on the fourth and five, and then they do what they always seem to do. They make a play when they absolutely have to have it. It's third and three. They can put the game on ice plus territory. Penix throws an improbable low percentage back shoulder with good coverage to Rome Adunze. And that puts the game on ice. And it's pretty amazing too. When you think about Rome Adunze and just how good he's been, I'm a voter in the Bolitnikoff. I think it's a, it's going to be tough, by the way. There's a lot of really good wide receiver performances that are being had nationally with Malik Neighbors and Marvin Harrison and Roma Dunze and even Roma Dunze's teammate, Jalen Polk. You know, I mean, there's a lot of great wide receiver performances to consider this year. But when you think about what Penix did when targeting Odunze, it targeted him 11 times. He completed seven of those 11 for 106 and two touchdowns. When he targeted everybody else, he was just one of 10. One of 10. For 10 yards. So it just goes to show you how important Roma Dunze is to that team and just how good they were. I think this was a gutsy win, a really gutsy win for Washington, who is now, over the last four weeks, uh, they've really rounded into form. They have wins against teams that are all going to be in the top 25 Oregon, Oregon State, Arizona, those three all improved their resume this weekend. And then Utah, who's likely to fall out, but still three good wins against teams that are probably going to be in the top 15 or so is pretty dang impressive. So we really need to stop doubting Washington. This team finds a way to get it done on a week-to-week basis. Even if it's not flashy, they are highly efficient and deserve to be highly respected. Takeaway number two, Texas handles their final road test. Now, this was a good win in a tough place where Texas had lost three of their last four games in Jack Trice Stadium, okay? This is a really important win, I think, for Texas because it basically puts a bow on where they were to where they now have gotten. There was a time a few years ago when Iowa State, famously, after beating Texas 30-7, to uh, this was in 2021 with Brock Purdy and Brees Hall and and the Cyclones had just beaten Texas three years in a row where they said that five-star culture beats five-star talent. Well, that led to Bo Davis getting on the bus, the defensive line coach, and absolutely ripping the team to shreds. It went viral, and it was kind of a, a rock-bottom moment for the Longhorns during that season that initiated the change. A bunch of the guys that were on that roster jumped in the portal. They've now replenished some of those guys with better players that have better buy-in and look at the results. Well, and then it was until this week, Iowa State's offensive lineman, Jared Hufford, he got everybody fired up by saying, quote, they're just humans that have to have, uh, that have a high ego that needs to be checked. I don't think they really know what's coming for them. That, well, I'm not sure Jared Hufford knew what was coming for him. What did he do? Uh, 
they struggled up front offensively <laughs> along the old line working against Byron Murphy and Tavondre Sweat, who ironically were named captains by Steve Sarkeesian in the pregame to go out there and do the coin toss and everything like that. And it was a sign of things to come. The front seven won this game for the Texas Longhorns. Tavondre Sweat and Byron Murphy completely controlled the line of scrimmage from start to finish. They allowed nine rushing yards. They had three sacks. They blocked an extra point, took it all the way back for a three-point swing. This is a Texas group that, while I know they've had some struggles at times on the offensive side, and they've been at times inconsistent in the back end, they still have a super elite front seven defensively, and we were reminded of that in that performance. And we also have to take into account going into Ames, Iowa is not a place that that is an easy place to go get a win. Think back 12 years ago, Oklahoma State, who was number two in the country at the time in 2011, they go into Iowa State and they lose. They lose in double overtime. And Texas, had that happened to them this weekend, it would have been, you know, just another in the many giant killer moments that Iowa State's experienced in the last couple of years. And what I think was more important in this game, there were a, a, a real handful of different plays that would have been considered backbreakers for Texas teams in the past. Okay. There were a bunch that could have swung the game and Texas would have maybe gotten into a bit of a funk that would have led to it becoming a 60 minute ball game. You have an 85 yard punt return touchdown by Xavier Worthy that was called back by penalty. You had a 23 yard touchdown pass to AD Mitchell that was also called back on a penalty. The Worthy lost a fumble in the red zone to kill a drive. At that time, they were only winning six to three at halftime. So there were a bunch of moments where it felt like, Oh man, this might slip away and Texas refused to allow those moments to have a huge effect in the game. This game could have been more significant in favor of the Longhorns, and it wasn't. And I thought Sark summed it up really nicely in the postgame. Quote, five-star culture versus five-star players. He referenced the quote from a couple years ago. Well, he also finished by saying, quote, well, now we have both. Five-star culture and five-star players, and it's hard to push back on any of that. They're a win away against Texas Tech at home from getting back to the Big 12 title game and two wins away from possibly finding their way into the college football playoff. Takeaway number three, Washington and Washington State are doing the right thing. The Apple Cup's going to be played this weekend. That will be the 115th time that they will go toe-to-toe. But what they did this past week they announced that they have agreed to a five-year continuation of the Apple Cup rivalry through 2028, and they announced this jointly. There have been so many examples, so many examples of rivalries that have gone by the wayside in favor of conference realignment, and I understand that. I know it's a necessary evil. I get it. I get it. And I know you can't play everybody. I know that some games mean more to some fan bases than others, but... If there's one thing that we've had as a sport that no other sport can have is the one chance every year that you get to play your rival. In the NFL, the Cowboys and Giants play twice a year, sometimes three times a year. The Jets and Patriots play twice a year. The you know Kansas City Chiefs and Denver Broncos play twice a year. You play your divisional rivals twice a year, which, by the way, is great. I love it. I'm glad that they do that. It's awesome for the NFL. 
In baseball, the Yankees and Red Sox play 18 times a year. You get 18 shots at your rival, man. Best man win. And yet we try to pretend like those are massive rivalries. You know what a massive rivalry is? When you get one shot, one chance to be able to take care of business against your rival, and then you live forever with the circumstances of that outcome. And we've gotten away from that. In an effort to prioritize being aligned with a better conference, we have punted on many occasions on rivalry games. And I get that. But it was really nice, really nice to see cooler heads prevail in the Apple Cup to know that that game needs to live on because it matters to Washington State and it matters to Washington fans. And by the way, it also matters to players. Oregon and Oregon State, they haven't announced just yet, but they're playing this week, and that's the last time that game's scheduled for quite a while. But it sounds like reading some of the press clippings and those that are more familiar with their scheduling arrangement, sounds like they're moving down the moving in a direction where that game will be sustained as well. So I'm really happy to see that those things are happening. But can we get it figured out, Bedlam? Like Oklahoma State and Oklahoma have played 118 times. 118 times. And I know Oklahoma's 91, 20, and 7. I understand that. But instead of acting like children, pointing fingers, and playing the blame game, let's satisfy the fans and let's satisfy the players because that should be the most important Thing. Same thing happened with Texas and Texas A&M. When Texas A&M decided to leave the Big 12 for the SEC, they blamed Texas, Texas blamed them, and they haven't played in 11 years. And who does that benefit? Nobody. I can go on and on. Oklahoma, Nebraska. I know that that was a casualty as a result of Nebraska leaving and them creating a, a division in, in the Big 12, and then Nebraska left to play in the Big 10 in 2011. And while they have played a couple times in 21 and 22 as non-conference foes, that's a game that should matter. That's a game that should be on the schedule annually. Kansas and Missouri, they played in 2011. Missouri goes to the SEC. They played each other 120 times. They get it on the schedule. Pitt-Penn State should be a game that matters. It was a major, major rivalry When Penn State left to enter the Big Ten from Independence to the Big Ten, that was back in 93, and they played all the time from 1935 to 92. And yes, there have been a couple of matchups between the two since, but we don't need rivalry games to go away as a result of conference realignment. There is a way to get those games on the schedule. Washington and Washington State proved it. They'll play again this weekend in what should be a massive game for both. Washington State to get the bowl eligible, Washington to get to the college football playoff potentially. Oregon, Oregon State, similar situation. They're going to play again in the future. It sounds like it's moving in that direction. Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, figure it out. Kansas, Missouri, figure it out. USF, UCF, figure it out. This is not that difficult. Take care of the games that matter the most. And if we do, we will better serve the fan and we will better serve the sport. Takeaway number four, Florida State rolls to 11-0, and 0, but it was at a significant cost. Jordan Travis, gruesome leg injury, man. Gruesome leg injury on Saturday, was carted off the field late in the first quarter. And just to kind of put things in perspective, how important Jordan Travis has been to Florida State since he's been inserted into the lineup a handful of years ago. He's responsible for the most touchdowns in Florida State history with 97. He's got the most yards total of total offense in Florida State. 
State history at over 10,500. Only player in FSU history with more than 50 passing touchdowns and 12 rushing touchdowns. Only player in FSU history with leached seven rushing touchdowns in four straight seasons. And entering the day, he had taken 609 of Florida State's 654 quarterback snaps. Tate Rodemaker, who's now going to be the starter moving forward, has taken just 35 snaps this season. He's their heart and soul. Like Jordan Travis is a leader. He's an incredible player. He's a tremendous story. And we don't have favorites in this sport. Like, I don't have a favorite player. I don't. Um, at least I'm not supposed to. But Jordan Travis is among my favorite players I've ever covered. His story of redemption, his story of resurrection, his willingness to just put his head down, ignore the outside noise and get better. And to see him laying on the ground, writhing in pain with the injury to his leg was just heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. We've already discussed the hip drop tackle. Now is not the time for that. We can talk about that at a later date. But I'm just sick to my stomach for Jordan Travis, and I'm sick to my stomach for Florida State. Because seeing your leader laying on the ground like that with his leg awkwardly at an unusual angle that is clearly ish, clearly a bad significant injury had to have had a significant impact. But I want to talk quickly about who Tate Rotomaker is, Okay. He stepped into the game, went 13 to 23 for 217 and a couple passing touchdowns. He also used his legs on a couple of occasions. I watched the, the game back just because I wanted to see how he handled it. And he actually, last year, if those that don't remember, he was thrust into the game against Louisville when Jordan Travis was injured. And at first, he looked pretty uncomfortable. But then down the stretch, he got better and better and better as his game went along, went six to 10 for 109 and two touchdowns after throwing a bad interception and made some really impressive throws down the stretch. Now he's not as mobile as Jordan Travis, but he's going to have to live a little bit more from the pocket. The good news is they have great run game. They have great running backs. They have excellent wide receivers. I don't think it's going to have some huge impact on what Florida state might be able to do down the stretch. I don't. Um, I do think though that Florida state has one weakness and that is their offensive line. And weakness is probably a bit strong because they're not a weakness, but they're not considered a legitimate strength, at least at this point. They're good. They're not great. I am worried, though, with Tate Roadmaker in the game, not quite as mobile, not quite as gifted at keeping plays alive. Will that have an impact on their offense's efficiency moving forward? That's the question that I have. I also think that it, in times of trouble, in times of adversity, they all looked in the direction of Jordan Travis, who was steady Eddie, man. Steady Eddie. When Florida State had to have a play because the momentum was swinging against him in the last 17 or 18 games, he was the guy that was responsible for initiating that spark. So I'm sick to my stomach about the injury. I'm sick to my stomach for Florida State, who was in the midst of their best season in quite some time. And I'm hoping for the very best as far as a quick recovery for Jordan Travis and for the Seminole fan base, who I know is hurting at the moment. But hopefully I can put some of their concerns aside for the moment with my takeaway number five. Takeaway number five. Let's stop with the, quote, QB is injured. It should impact their ranking. Like, Let's stop with that. Because while I acknowledge that quarterback is the most important position on the team, I don't know a soul that's going to push back on that. That's the most important position on the team. It's the hardest position to play. It's the hardest position to, it's the position that will most likely contribute to wins or losses more than any other position. 
I understand all of that. But what we don't understand is what Tate Rotomaker is capable of. And what we also need to do is we need to acknowledge that the team and the team's accomplishments should be weighed heavier than the presence of one individual. And I have a million different examples of guys that have come in off the bench. There hasn't been much of a drop off whatsoever. And in some cases, rare cases, I might add, there's actually been improvement at the quarterback spot. Let's go back to 2014. In the preseason, starting quarterback for the Buckeyes was injured. No big deal. We're going to put in this freshman named JT Barrett and see how he does. Well, what did JT Barrett do that year? Well, he led Ohio State to a 10-1 and record before he was injured against Michigan. Man, Ohio State's done now. There's no way they're going to be able to overcome his absence. They've already lost one quarterback. Now they're going to have to go to quarterback number three. How the heck are they going to be able to do that? Well, in goes Cardell Jones, does well enough to get the win against Michigan, and then he goes into the game against Wisconsin in the Big Ten title game. And they won that game like 175-3, to or 175-0. to nothing. I don't remember exactly what the final score was. I think it was 59 nothing, if I remember correctly. It didn't have an impact on who Ohio State was. Yeah, they tweaked. Yeah, they adjusted. Yeah, they made some changes. Cardale's skill set was a little different from that of JT Barrett, but it didn't matter. He was perfectly fine. And while the offense might have looked different with Braxton Miller, the offense might have looked different with JT Barrett. It might have looked different with Cardale Jones, but they didn't drop off. He goes on to beat Alabama in the Sugar Bowl to get to the national championship, and he goes into the national championship and has a great game taking care of the football, and they beat Oregon for the title. That's an example in the last nine years in which, oh, well, you know what? The quarterback's out. Why? That was a year two. Remember, we had Baylor and TCU that were sitting there with only one loss at their resume, and the conversation there heading into Selection Day was Ohio State versus Baylor versus TCU. Who should get in? Well, they ended up going with Ohio State, even in spite of their quarterback not being available, and it didn't matter. They ended up winning the whole dang thing to begin with. There's about 10 other examples I can give you, too. What about Tua Tungavailoa? Tua Tungavailoa gets thrust into the national championship game at halftime with Bama trailing and struggling offensively. Jalen Hurts, a non-factor there in the first half against the Bulldogs there in 2017 title game. Tua goes in. They start lighting it up with vertical passing. Next thing you know, the offense doesn't skip a beat, and they win the title. Second and 26, touchdown, Devontae Smith, walk-off winner. Title number five for Nick Saban. Didn't have an impact whatsoever. How about this one? Stetson Bennett. Who did he replace? Well, JT Daniels got a little banged up there in 2021. Started the season, was supposed to be the guy. JT Daniels gets a little beat up. In goes Stetson Bennett. He's running around making plays. And next thing you know, he gets hot. He gets better. and gets better. He goes on to win however many games in a row to cap off a college career. That would have never happened if not for an injury to JT Daniels. Dylan Gabriel went in for an injured Mackenzie Milton and has now become one of the most productive players in the history of college football. Caleb Williams was thrust in for a highly ineffective Spencer Rattler. How about this year? Noah Fafita for Arizona, who's won five consecutive games. And it was probably their most dominant performance to date. Noah Fafita goes in, goes 23 of 30, 253, a couple touchdowns, no picks. And they destroy Utah. They're up 28-0 in the first half by itself. 
So when Jaden Delora got hurt, a lot of people saying, yeah, you know, Arizona's done. They got no shot. Well, they put in Fafita, and the offense has actually gotten better. I'll even use one more example, John Paddock. How many people are familiar with him? Probably not a lot, but he's starting quarterback in Illinois right now. Luke Altmeyer gets hurt. He goes in, comes off the bench, three for three, 85 yards and a touchdown to beat Minnesota. Follows it the following week and another impressive victory for 507. Yeah, he lost his last week to Iowa, but the passing attack has taken off way more so than it was prior to when Luke Altmeyer was a starting guy. So we can totally put to bed this whole, well, their quarterback's not available. It should impact their ranking. The team is bigger than one individual. Always. Always. So to penalize the other 84 scholarship players on the Florida State roster, and by doubting the other floors, the other 84 players on the Florida State roster, to me is a misguided approach. Like we should reward the team for what they've done. Not for what they might look like without their starting quarterback. It's the most irritating argument that people make. Oh, well, we should drop Florida State. Maybe an undefeated Florida State gets left out in favor of a one-loss Pac-12 title champion. No, that shouldn't be the way it is. Maybe Florida State gets jumped by a 12-1 and Texas because they're without Jordan Travis. No, under no circumstances. If Florida State runs the table at 13-0, they should be in. I don't care what the circumstances are with the health of their outstanding starting quarterback, Jordan Travis. All right, I just got to ask you a question because you kind of hit it towards the end. But what if Florida State squeaks by? I think you went you met, referenced Ohio State in 2014. They beat they beat Wisconsin 59 to nothing. That showed the committee that boy, even you could it's a plug and play offense, you know? That's what it is. What if Florida State squeaks by Florida, barely beats Louisville, and while Texas dominates Texas Tech and then blows out whoever's in the Big 12 championship? You don't think the committee will look at that and make that question? I'm not saying they would. I'm just saying they should. If Florida State is undefeated, they're in the playoff. If you are an undefeated Power 5 champion, there should be no argument. Unless there's five undefeated Power 5 champions, there should be no argument. It's simple as that. It's not like they didn't play anybody either. I mean, Florida State's played good quality competition. If they beat Louisville, Louisville at that point will have been potentially an 11-1 football team. It's pretty dang good. I don't care if you win by one or a hundred. It's pretty dang good. Texas lost a game. Like if Texas wanted to get in over Florida State, hey, guess what? Don't lose to Oklahoma and give up a 75-yard drive with a minute and 12 seconds left to lose the game. Don't get stuffed to the goal line. Don't turn it over three times. I'm sorry. Florida State didn't do those things. Like they won the games that were in front of them. And while we all get enamored with the eye test and, oh, well, the game control and, oh, the margin of victory. No, did you win or did you lose? And if Florida State won all their games, they should be in. Over a team that did not win all their games. It's as simple as that. And I I could understand the argument a little better if Florida State played Liberty's schedule, but they didn't. They played a Power 5 conference schedule and challenged themselves out of conference by beating an LSU team that's currently ranked number 15 in the College Football Playoff Committee rankings. So, no, I don't think Texas should jump them. If Florida State loses, then that opens the door for Texas. But that's up to how Florida State handles it. They're in control of their own destiny the way I see it. Takeaway number six, 
Michigan got it done on defense, but there is a little bit of an alarming trend that's starting to showcase itself. Now, it was not a great performance whatsoever. Uh, Michigan did, however, become the second Big Ten team in the last 20 years to record two safeties in a game. I'll give you a dollar if you can guess who the other team was. It'd be Iowa, of course. <laughs> who else would it be? Now, they benefited from a bunch of big plays on that side of the ball. They had the block punt, scoop and score touchdown, a couple picks from Mike Sainer still, had a safety on the intentional grounding penalty in the end zone. But the team really hasn't been the same offensively since Jim Harbaugh has not been on the sideline. And in particular, if you want to take it one step further, it's more noticeable with the play of J.J. McCarthy. Now, Michigan's offense had about 15 different chances to close out Maryland, just couldn't do it, uh, at least not until the end right? When they got the fourth down or whatnot, that was really the difference. But the running game struggled, averaged just three and a half a carry. M McCarthy never really gotten much of a rhythm and the stat line was pretty obvious of that. And if you look last year, last week, Michigan was able to run the ball really effectively against Penn State and ultimately won the game by running the football. But the passing game has been a little bit hit or miss. And I, I know that there are some circumstances that, that need to be accounted for, like the fact that your top receiver, Roman Wilson, was out in the first quarter, that Miles Hinton, their offensive lineman, also left the game early, and he was already in for the starting left guard, Ladarius Henderson. So I know that there are some injuries that are factoring into maybe what was a less-than-stellar offensive performance. But if we look at what J.J. McCarthy's done, this game in particular, 12-23, 141, a pick in the end zone, uh, Look at what he's done in the six games when Harbaugh was there. He's averaging about 240 yards a game, 72% completion, 11 to 0 touchdown to interception ratio. Well, in the five games when Harbaugh was not there, 180 yards per game, 76 on the per completion percentage, but he's got 7 to 4 touchdown to interception ratio. So the interceptions are probably the biggest concern to me. He threw three against Bowling Green. That was way back in September. And I think if you watched the Maryland game, there probably could have been three picks. Now, only one was intercepted, but there were a handful that were questionable and not good throws, not good decisions. So the alarming trend is that J.J. McCarthy, when Harbaugh's there, has been a much more efficient player. I don't know if it's the sounding board. I don't know if it's the communication. I don't know if it's just the fact that those two feel like they're one and the same. But when Harbaugh's absent, McCarthy's play is dipped, and he's going to be absent next week against a legit defense for the Ohio State Buckeyes. So we'll, of course, break that game down at no end. But that's a trend, and that's something that I'm starting to worry about just a little bit as they head into a, a game that is extremely losable this upcoming week, especially when taking into account takeaway number seven. Ohio State is right where they want to be. Now, the last couple of weeks with Ohio State, it feels like things are starting to change a little bit, especially on the offensive side. The defense, they've been excellent all season long. There's, there's really no surprise. And to beat Minnesota the way they did, 37-3, it was pretty much a perfect, perfect setup for how they want to head into the game against Michigan. Then you look the week before against Michigan State. They probably had their, their best game probably because they finally were healthy. Uh, now, throughout the course of the season, 
really since the Western Kentucky game, there have been guys that have been in and out of the lineup. I mean, Travion Henderson missed three games after the Notre Dame win. Uh, by the time he was back, Emeka Ibuka was sidelined. And by the time he returned, Cade Stover has been a little banged up as well. So they're getting healthy at the right time. And it's very reflective with how they've dominated the last two opponents. They've found some balance too, which is really encouraging. Because if you're putting too much on the passing game, I don't, I don't know if Kyle McCord's capable of carrying a team through the air. But Travion Henderson being thrust back in the lineup now, they're finding a lot of efficiency. We've seen a lot of balance. Ohio State ran the ball 35 times for 224 on Saturday. They also threw the ball 32 times for 219. That's almost a perfect 50-50 mix of run-pass, which is keeping them on schedule, which is not forcing Kyle McCord to be in an obvious passing situation, which has taken some of the pressure off of him. The one takeaway I would have in this game is that while they did move the ball effectively between the 20s, the red zone offense was not great. They got inside the 25 times and kicked two field goals. But the offense for in, gen- you know, in, in general, I think, has looked pretty dang good. And taking into account that starters didn't play the whole game, but in the series that the starters were in, they had just one punt and scored on seven of their nine drives. So there's a lot to like. And even though the offensive line, the offensive line is a little bit of a concern for me still for Ohio State particularly the right side of the offensive line. Because when you look at what Michigan has up front defensively, that's going to be pretty significant. But the last two weeks, man, they are trending in the right direction on that side of the ball, combining for 964 yards of offense. And it's the first time this season that Ohio State has had 400 total yards or more in back-to-back games against Power 5 competition. So it looks like they're trending in the right direction on offense. But defensively, I am – Cautiously optimistic that Tommy Eichenberg, their outstanding linebacker, is going to be good to go. They were without three starters on defense this past week, undisclosed injuries, and they're not like they're just run-of-the-mill guys either. To be without Tommy Eichenberg, to be without Lathan Ransom, and to be without Mike Hall up front defensively, the defensive tackle, that's going to be significant. So I'll be watching closely this week about those guys' availability and will they be ready to go when they tee it up against the Michigan Wolverines. Takeaway number eight. Georgia is flexing their offensive muscle. Now, they were without some of their playmakers, without a key offensive lineman, in a hostile environment after a really poor start, another one, by the Georgia defense. But that's their third win against a ranked team in a row, this time on the road. They destroyed Tennessee. It was their 28th straight win and clinched their third straight unbeaten season in SEC play. Carson Beck continues to play crazy efficient football. 298 passing yards and three touchdowns, including 210 in the first half. But the big plays downfield, man, that's what's really been such a huge difference for Carson Beck. 16 yards or longer on throws in the first 30 minutes of the game. He completed seven passes that were considered explosive plays offensively. Now, it wasn't without some concerns. Lad McConkey played but was in a limited role. He had the ankle injury. Remember earlier in the year, he's had the back injury. So McConkie's been in and out of the lineup, but he rolled the ankle against Ole Miss. So the usage was limited. Ra-Ra Thomas leaves the game with a foot injury after catching the 18-yarder there in the first quarter. And then to make matters worse, Tate Ratledge, their starting right guard, went down in the first quarter and it didn't have an impact at all. 
that's what was most remarkable. Is like Tate Ratledge goes down. It's like, oh man, that's a that's a big piece to be without. Carson Beck wasn't sacked, and the pocket got better and better as the game went along. Now they have so many different weapons to rely on. Everybody knows Brock Bowers. I don't need to explain to everybody just how good Brock Bowers is, right? Everybody knows that. That's not that's not news. But what's been most remarkable, I think, about their receiver core is that even without Rabra, even without Ladd, Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint, big body, big physical wide receiver, he's always seemed to step up when the opportunity presents itself. 91 yards and a couple touchdowns. Brock Bowers did his usual Brock Bowers stuff. Nothing surprising about his performance. Nothing surprising about the way he played throughout the game. But Dylan Bell is... Another one of those crazy versatile pieces that is so difficult to account for. Caught a touchdown and threw his first career touchdown pass, hit the, hit the one to Rosamie Jackson. He's the first Georgia player with a passing touchdown and a receiving touchdown in a conference game since Heinz Ward back in 1996. And what's difficult about Georgia, we've seen Dylan Bell play a traditional running back spot. We've seen Brock Bowers play a traditional running back spot. We've seen Muse play in the slot some. We'd seen Rosemade Jackson, who can block at the end because he's a big body receiver. They have pieces that you can play in a bunch of different spots, which makes it very difficult for a defense to match up with. And then you think about how Carson Beck's playing and his comfort within the offense, driving the ball with great decisiveness and decision-making. He's playing as well as anybody. I mean, that guy is playing. We're going to talk about the Heisman in just a moment. And I know he probably isn't going to have enough name recognition at this point to close the gap with some of the guys that would be in front of them. But I think the guy belongs in New York. I think he's been that good. He's been that good this year for a team that at times has been without a lot of playmakers and at times has been one-dimensional. Now, on the defensive side, I can't figure out for the life of me what's going on with Georgia on the first drives of the game. (laughs) It's one of the crazy tendencies that I think people don't, really talk about, but Tennessee, they're the fifth straight opponent to score a touchdown on the first drive against the Georgia Bulldogs. This time it took one play. Jalen Wright, 75 yards right up the middle, straight down the field, touchdown. Uh, But after that, Georgia settled in, consecutive three and outs. And after the first play that went 75 yards, the next 17 plays for Tennessee gained 57 yards. Now, Georgia still has yet to allow any opponent to score more than 21 points this year, so they're still excellent on that side of the ball, but it is almost comical how it takes them a drive to really get into the ball game before they start to showcase what they can do on defense. Georgia's playing excellent football, and I can't wait to see what they do here in the next couple weeks as they are trying to chase a third consecutive championship there in Athens, Georgia. Takeaway number nine, the battle for Los Angeles delivered two very different narratives. Now, there was was a strange game in some ways, but it was kind of back and forth, right? And then it was the beginning of the third quarter, UCLA offense had scored 17 combined points in the previous two games. They go 15 plays, 65 yards, Ethan Garbers, you know, getting hit. And then a short touchdown flip, TJ Harden. And then the wheels came off for SC as Marshawn Lloyd kind of bounced around, made a couple cuts, fumbled, 
Next thing you know, it's going right to Alex Johnson, who took it all the way back to the house. And that was, at the point, the backbreaker for USC. Now, USC was only able to muster one touchdown the rest of the way. Layatu Latu came into a man possessed there in the second half. I vote on the Lombardi Award. Uh, I feel like I vote on a lot of the awards. Layatu Latu is under strong consideration as one of the best defenders in America. He's been that good this year. The Bruins held USC to just three rushing yards on 22 carries. Latu had multiple sacks in the game. And for UCLA, can we please just remove Chip Kelly from hot seat consideration? I mean, a lot of people last week saying that he's impending doom. UCLA's done. Well, first of all, who are you going to get that's better? Second of all, I think he's still a very, very good coach. And I hated that in the post game, he was having to kind of swat away rumors about his, his firing. And UCLA athletic director Martin Jarman had come out and called some of the reports inaccurate and inappropriate. Well, how'd they get out to begin with? Like they completely dominated USC. They were the better team on both sides of the football for all four quarters. And UCLA defense coordinator Danton Lynn ran a defense that completely swallowed what USC was trying to do in the run game. So the hot seat discussion has now gone from Chip Kelly all the way over to Lincoln Riley. At one point, USC was a top five team this season. They were 6-0. and As recently as the last couple of weeks, they were still in control of their own destiny to potentially get to the Pac-12 title game, but they finished 1-5. and And it was really dangerously close to being 5-7. and And think about the win against Arizona in overtime. Think about the 50-49 to win against Cal. Both required two-point conversion stops at the end to avoid what would have been an unfortunate losing outcome. But this team is trending in the wrong direction. We came into the year saying SC's on the verge, man. They're going to take off. Oh, look out. When they go to the Big Ten and they have better athletes and they're more superior athletes, they have speed, they're going to just take off. Well, their offensive line regressed significantly this season. It felt like they put way too much pressure on Caleb Williams to just be a superhero throughout the game. They couldn't run the ball whatsoever. And Lincoln Riley, after starting his USC career 11-1, has now gone 7-7 and in his last 14 games. And that's with a game-changing starting quarterback. So USC is going to have to look in the mirror this offseason. It's not that they can't get it figured out, but there's a lot of things that need to get addressed. Defensive coordinator, how they practice, how physical they are in practice, all those things need to get addressed because if it doesn't, then it's going to be a lot tougher when they move into a line of scrimmage league like the Big Ten, and they're having to play against teams that will absolutely bloody your nose like UCLA did this past weekend. Takeaway number 10, the Heisman is more than likely down to three candidates. It's in no particular order, Jaden Daniels, Bo Nix, and Michael Penix. And when I say in no particular order, it's an alphabetical order. <laughs> D comes before N becomes comes before P. So I put in alphabetical order to avoid any confusion. Let's start with Bonix. He's the favorite at the moment. Bonix had another remarkably efficient performance. I don't think a Heisman moment is going to necessarily come in the game against Arizona State, but to be that efficient in the first half of the game is pretty remarkable. I think Bonix has played great football this year. Uh, I think he's been accurate. He's been decisive. 
I think he is deserving of the credit that he's getting. Um, and I believe that there's a real chance that he could ultimately win the award. He's going to have multiple opportunities against quality competition to showcase what is a Heisman-worthy resume. Oregon State, hopefully after last week's performance, won't fall too far outside of the top 12, top 15. So he's going to have a chance to take on Oregon State in a high-profile environment. They win that game. He gets another crack at Washington. If he beats Washington, I'd be surprised if he doesn't win the award. Michael Penix on the other side. I know that people will look at the stats from this past weekend, but if you look a little bit further, you'll acknowledge that his greatness has been on display over and over and over again this year. There have been a couple games here and there where he wasn't his crazy efficient self, but his anticipation, his accuracy, the way he throws guys open, the way he pushes the ball down the field, the way he escapes with timely plays, the way he puts the game on ice with a back shoulder throw to, to Rome Adunze, perfectly placed on a critical third and three and plus territory, he does all the little things. And I don't think there was necessarily a, quote, Heisman moment that happened this past weekend against Oregon State. But if there was any Heisman moment that's happened for Bo Nix, Jaden Daniels, or Michael Penix, it should have come in the game against Oregon. When it took two plays to go right down the field, take the lead for good there in Seattle in front of one, of one in front of uh, an audience that was enormous and in one of the biggest games of the college football season so far. So he should probably be... I know he's number three right now as far as the odds. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because if I had to deliver a vote at the moment, he would be under very, very strong consideration. And then finally, Jaden Daniels. The big question with him is not that you want my personal opinion. I think he's been the most outstanding player in college football this year. Just watching him, watching how he plays, watching how he elevates his team, watching how he runs and some of the throws he pulls off, man. I mean, he's fitting it into crazy tight windows down the field, crazy tight windows. And I'm absolutely amazed almost every time I watch him. Like he's going to make four or five plays that blow your mind. So I think he's been the most outstanding player in college football. And the award for the Heisman Trophy should go to the most outstanding player in the sport. But the world's changed a little bit. And if you're not on a college football playoff contending team, it's really difficult to win the award unless your stats are just ungodly. Now, we've seen it in the past. We've seen Robert Griffin III win it. We've seen uh, Lamar Jackson win it. We've seen Johnny Manziel win it. We've seen it at a few other places where guys didn't, have a national championship contending roster, but still won the award. Jaden Daniels, if his defense were worth their salt whatsoever, his team would be in college football playoff contention because of one reason, him. He's amazing, I think. And if he's not on everyone's shortlist because he's not going to have the opportunity to play on high-profile platforms the next couple weeks, He's playing against Texas A&M this week, but it's not going to manufacture the same amount of eyeballs that you're going to get when you play in an SEC title game, a Pac-12 title game, or even a big rivalry weekend game like some of his Heisman competitors are going to be doing. 
So I think Jaden Daniels deserves a lot of consideration. And do not evaluate based on the platform. Evaluate based on the play itself. Take an hour to watch some of the things that Jaden Daniels has done with the football this year, and you'll understand where I'm coming from. Because I think this battle, while the Vegas might not agree, this battle should be razor thin between the three. I can make an argument on behalf of all three. But because Daniels is not going to be playing on Championship Saturday and not going to be playing on a high-profile platform this weekend, I think he's going to be penalized, and he shouldn't be. And then a bonus, a bonus takeaway this weekend. Any given Saturday, you better be ready to play. Any given Saturday. And Auburn found out the hard way this weekend. New Mexico State was a 25.5-point underdog. That's the second-largest upset of the season. They were plus 1,500 on the money line. That was Auburn's largest upset loss in the last 45 seasons, the largest SEC favorite to lose a game by double digits in the last 45 seasons. And New Mexico State, that's their second straight season where they've beaten Hugh Freeze as a 24-point underdog. They outgained Auburn. It was not fluky. It was not a result of some turnovers or a kick return or a blocked punt. It was not fluky. They outgained Auburn 414 to 213. It was their worst yardage differential versus a non-Power 5 team in the last 20 years for the Auburn Tigers. And this was not the Iron Bowl warm-up that Hugh Freeze and the Auburn Tigers wanted. But you got to give a ton of credit to Jerry Kill. They came to play. They completely bullied and dominated the line of scrimmage against the Auburn Tigers. And their now all-time record against SEC competition is 1-24. and So a shout-out to Jerry Kill and the New Mexico State Aggies for a massive win this past weekend. Nine and three, and they'll be playing for the Conference USA title. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you're on the ESPN YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up button. Would really appreciate that as well. Subscribe to the ESPN College Football channel. That would be terrific also. For all of us here at Always College Football, we'll be back on Wednesday. A little different schedule this week. We'll do some of our rankings reaction. We'll be back on Wednesday to help set the table. Get it? Thanksgiving table for some of the matchups on Thursday, Friday, and of course on Rivalry Saturday. So for all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, and Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.